really do, and I'm really thankful to Pastor Christ the King. So, so thank, thank you for that. So, um, James chapter 1. We'll be in the book of James uh, through um, Advent. So we'll, we'll finish up right before Advent, and that's upon us closer than you think. Uh, and then we'll, then we'll dive into um, uh, the book of Hebrews. Not, not going all the way through Hebrews, but we'll be looking at some, some passages there specifically uh, about Jesus and Hebrews. And then in the, the new year, we will uh, jump back into the second part of Genesis. And we'll go through that for a couple of months. And then we'll come back to First Peter. So that's, that's kind of the overview. Um, first, when I say come back, uh, James and First Peter and Second Peter, all those, uh, all those, all those go together. They're, they're known as the Catholic epistles, the epistles for the church. And so we'll come back to those Catholic epistles and then work our way through those through the rest of the year. So that's the plan. Thinking ahead. So there we go. But today, this morning, we are in James chapter one, and we are going to look at verses one through eighteen. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Let me read those verses for us. This is God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like, a, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from, from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth, brings forth death. Do not be, be, be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for, um, for gathering us. Thank you for these people um, uh, who have who who are here right now, uh, and those who who are might be listening at home right now as well. God, we pray um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So anytime you start a new book of the Bible when you're preaching, um, we have to do some introductory comments. We have to do a little bit of housekeeping to kind of know where we're coming from because this isn't, James isn't the book, uh, isn't, isn't the Psalms, James isn't uh, Romans, James isn't one of the Gospels. Uh, it's an epistle that is written to a, to a broad body of believers here. This is why you have uh, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Um, so it's written to a lot of people. And so we want to put it into the context as much as we possibly can, but we also want to know a little bit about who is writing to us and why he's writing to us. And so you have verse 1 there, right at the outset, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So we want to know a little bit about James. James is the author of this letter. Um, anytime the, a New Testament writer writes, they, they begin the letter with their name and telling you a little bit about them. So he's the author of this letter. Uh, but James is also, you may or may not know, is the brother of Jesus. But most importantly, he was a disciple of Jesus. 
And I think, just, just in the way in which James begins his letters, I think this is what James wants us to know most of all about him. So, uh, if it were me, and I was Jesus' brother, that is probably something I would start with. So that you could see that I've, I have been around this man, I have lived with this, with this man, I know about this man, but that's not what James does here. James says, a servant of God and a servant of Christ. A servant of God and a servant of Christ. And, and both of these have significance because of James being Jesus' brother, but also uh, of James just uh, exclaiming that he is a servant of God and a servant of Christ. Uh, both of these have significance here because uh, most of the letter of James is word-for-word -word teachings of his brother Jesus. So this may not mean much to you, but it is, uh, or you may not have thought about this a whole lot when you read the book of James. Um, but when you begin to kind of delve into a deeper study of James, you will quickly run across opinions who, who say James shouldn't even be in the Bible because of its lack of mentions uh, concerning Jesus. Jesus is only mentioned by name two times in the entirety of James's letter. And then you have others like the reformer Martin Luther, and some of you may be familiar with his words, who, who could not stand the book of James, and he called the book of James an epistle of straw and relegated it to a secondary status in the New Testament. He didn't think it shouldn't be in the Bible, but he just thought it should just kind of be in the back as kind of like an appendix. And that's what people thought about James. But when you consider that no other New Testament document has been more influenced by the teaching of Jesus than James, it, it, it makes you begin to question uh, those opinions about James being thrown out of the Bible or made a secondary uh, text. And because of this, one commentator said, it is not far wrong to consider James one of the most theological writings in the New Testament. Now, James doesn't always get that label. Typically, that's Romans. That's the most theological writing. But this, this one commentator is saying, James is probably one of the most theological writings in all of the New Testament. Because when you begin to see that, that James uh, weaves Jesus' teaching into the very fabric of his own uh, practical instruction, you have to stop and reconsider what it is James is trying to say to us in his letter. And then take it very seriously. Because what James does is, is, is lay before the church the very wisdom of his brother Jesus, who is also God incarnate. Now, because of James's uh, organi organizational structure, James is often referred to as, as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's, it's chocked full of wisdom and, and, and practical advice. Um, and this is what makes James one of the, the most read and most quoted books in the New Testament because it's immensely practical. And we like practical. We get really excited about doing and being able to accomplish something. And that's, that's what James kind of lays before the church here. This is how you live according to God's wisdom. And so these wisdom sayings of James are, are around. There's, there's about 10 to 12 major themes in uh, this letter uh, of James's, and which, which 10 to 12 themes in a letter, and I don't know when the last time you wrote a letter was, but typically you're, you're going to have one theme. James has about 12. And some of them are, are these. Uh, sufferings and trials. He deals with the rich and the poor. He deals with humility and pride, sin and temptation, anger, language, our speech, how do we talk to one another, social justice, mercy and judgment, faith and works, wisdom and character, conflict in community, communion with God, decision-making and the future, consumerism and wealth, faith and prayer, and the goodness of creation. Just to name a few. And in these first 18 verses that we just got through reading, uh, James uh, begins to kind of set the tone for us um, to, to what, what creates uh, what, what I call spiritual wholeness. Or maybe a better way or a better way to understand it is James is, is, 
is showing us what it means to mature as a believer in Christ. So we'll look at this through three points this morning. The first two uh, are encompassing the last. So the first is calculated joy. The second is requested wisdom. And these two, calculated joy and requested wisdom, they encompass the third point, which is the right way to live or right living. So calculated joy, requested wisdom, and the right way to live. So first, calculated joy. Look at verse 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James begins by saying, before we can talk about why God gives us trials, we need to have the right framework to think about them. Because if you don't, if you don't have the right framework to think about trials, uh, you'll end up seeing trials as, as mere sufferings you have to get through to, to get to this joy that James is talking about. So you have, here's you, here's the trial, and here's joy. That's typically how we look at it. And we say, we have to get through that trial. We have to, in, we have to suffer through it and just kind of grin and bear it. And then maybe on the other side, we can have joy. That is not what James is telling the church here. Instead, we have to see trials as something that God is doing to grow you towards maturity, to make you more like Jesus. This is why James begins with, count it all joy. So this, uh, this, this language here is, is a counting language. Um, so another way that you could phrase this uh, counted all joy is calculate your joy. Calculate your joy. Uh, add it up. Consider it. Look at the numbers. Just like you would look at your budget, you're, you're calculating your money to see how much you have to spend in particular areas within your budget. James is saying, calculate your joy. Consider it. Look at it. Why? Because he wants you to determine what is better. He wants you to see joy in Christ, and then he wants you to see everything else. And he wants that joy that you're calculating, that joy that you're adding up, and he wants you to use that to compare it to the ways of the world, which is where we typically fall. So a great example of this is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, um, when, when, when the author of Hebrews is describing to us uh, Moses' faith, and he uses this exact same Greek word. He translates it, translates it as regarded, but you could say counted or calculated just as well. And it reads like this. The author of Hebrews says, He, Moses, regarded, counted, or calculated disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So Moses is, is looking at the riches of Egypt, which he, which he was able to indulge in and live in and benefit from, and he's, and he's comparing it to the disgrace for the, for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the earthly riches that he could have his hands on. And he says, disgrace for Christ is better. So the way to calculate your joy rightly is to understand it this way. And this is what a psychologist friend told me uh, just last week. He said, sometimes... And listen to this, because I know this is, I know trials and difficulties and tests and sufferings are hard and we all experience them, so, so listen to this. He says, sometimes God allows things he hates to produce something he loves. You might want to write that down. Sometimes God allows things he hates to produce something he loves. So this means that God will sometimes allow difficult circumstances to fall upon you in order to produce in you a greater spiritual maturity, a, a, a deeper dependence on your Heavenly Father, and a greater awareness that it is Jesus 
that is keeping you. Sometimes God will allow that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And some of you I know are sitting in suffering right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God uses things, sometimes allows things he hates to produce in something that he loves? Because that's something that he loves is you. Do you believe that? This is also how we answer that famous why question that the world tends to throw at us. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We've heard that. And Paul answers it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. With the same sentiment that James has here, 1 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, like Moses, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we are a people who like to solve things immediately. If there's a problem, our natural inclination is to solve the problem immediately. Let's get it, let's get it over with. Let's get it done. If there is, if there is pain, our, our default response is to alleviate the pain as quickly as possible. But sometimes you need to sit in your pain. Sometimes you need to em- embrace the suffering instead of trying to, to push it away or just try to grin and bear it and, and push your way through it emotionless. And then while you're sitting there, and while you're, you're, you're experiencing this, this pain and embracing this suffering, you, you listen and look for the joy found there in that space. Because your pain and your suffering is not wasted. God has you there for a reason. Trials are, 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 are producing something within you. Not simply something to get through and get over as quickly as possible as we like to do. So what are they producing? Look at verses 3 and 4. James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Now, I recognize that that word steadfastness probably means absolutely nothing to us because it is not a word that we typically use uh, on the regular in our English language. But it is an important word, and it's seen throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's an important word for us to understand. Because in the New Testament, the characteristic of a person who is steadfast is one who is not easily turned from their deliberate purpose. So they have a place in which they are moving, there is a direction in which they are heading, and nothing is going to steer them off off of that particular purpose. They may stop along the way, they may get caught up in a little rough patch, but but by and large they are moving in the same direction. So for a believer, that means... They remain loyal to the faith even in the greatest trials and sufferings of their life. Steadfast. I was reading, um, I've been reading the Psalms at night and I was reading Psalm 44 the other night which is a psalm that begins with this with this great testimony about uh, who God is and, and what he has done in the life of his people, uh, of his faithfulness to, to the people of Israel. And then you have uh, verses 9 through 16, and, and, and then it skips over to verses 9, 19 through 22. So most of the psalm, I would say probably 90% of Psalm 44, is a lament. And it's a lament, not towards outside enemies, not towards like kind of inner turmoil, but it is a lament towards God. Or you could say it's a complaint towards God. So I'll just give you some examples of, of the words here. You have rejected us and disgraced us. Talking to God. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You, you have, you, all the day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. 
And then you have in this, um, you know, these 26 verses here, then you have this kind of short respite of, of, of remembrance and hope and joy when the, when the writer of the psalm kind of looks back and says, look, in verses 17 through uh, 18, uh, he says, And this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. So here's this author saying, look, you've done all these great things in our lives, and we have been faithful to them. We have been faithful to you, Lord. We have done all of these things. We have trusted you in all of our, in all of our troubles. We have done this, and yet you still, uh, you still seem to have forgotten us. You still seem to have covered us with the shadow of death. But then you have the final verse of Psalm 44 that says, Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's steadfastness. When you can be in the, the total pit of despair, when your world is crumbling around you, so it seems, and every possible uh, bad thing that could happen is happening to you, and, and it, steadfastness is uh, not turning back. Steadfastness is your steps are not departing from the ways of the Lord, and then you can say, even in the midst of your worst, rise up and come to my help. Redeem me for the sake of your steadfast love. So if one isn't turned from their faith by trials, James tells us they will be made perfect. Now James's use of the word perfect here, this isn't the first time it's going to come up, it's going to come up uh, again throughout his letter, but his, his use of the word perfect in his letter is a bit unnerving to us when we first read it because perfection is something we kind of balk at. We like to say things when, uh, when we make mistakes or when uh, someone is hurt by our actions. We like to have that response, and you know what it is. I'm not perfect. You can't, you can't expect perfer- perfection out of me. As if the other person is always expecting this out of you. But remember, James is Jesus' brother. James is a disciple of Jesus, and so James's teachings are based off Jesus' own teaching, some of it uh, almost word for word. But Jesus says something very similar to what James is saying here in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, when Jesus says, uh, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus kind of ups the ante there. Be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. So almost this impossible standard on our own. So some explanation is needed here uh, because we all know that none of us are perfect or uh, will ever reach perfection while on this earth. So the key word here in James for perfect is this Greek word teleos. And you could translate this word teleos as the word mature. And we all know what that word means. So going back to the original point, we could say that this is someone who, is, who has reached a point in their walk with Christ that, that when something adverse happens to them, some suffering, some, some difficult trial, whatever it may be, that they can and will count it all joy. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. We heard this earlier when Danielle read for us from Romans 5, where Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So suffering is needed to eventually produce hope within us. is what James and Paul are telling us. So we, we can rejoice because we know our suffering is not wasted. It's not pointless. So you might be saying, okay, I want that. 
I hear what you're saying. I want, I want to mature, but it seems really hard. How, how, do, I, how do I get there? How do I, how do I count it all joy when I meet uh, trials? You have no idea what I'm walking through. How can you stand there and say that? So how do I get to that point? Well, that's our second point. And it's you ask for wisdom. Look at verse 5. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without, without reproach, and it will be given him. So essentially what James is saying here is you don't meet trials and sufferings alone. Because sometimes we will walk through trials and we will walk through sufferings, and we will not understand in the moment, you will not understand uh, why you're walking through them necessarily. Usually, it's, it's when you kind of can look back over your sufferings and go, oh, that's why, that's why God did that. Usually, it's not within the midst of it. So, when you are in the midst of those trials and you're in the midst of those sufferings, uh, James says, go to God and ask for wisdom. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Don't try to kind of muscle your way out of it, but go to God and ask for wisdom. So with this many people here in a room, uh, there's, there's, we're, we're all dealing, uh, currently dealing with particular trials in our life. And trials aren't necessarily like someone's dying or you have you know, cancer or one of these kind of tragic things that we think about. That, that is worst case scenario and we should think about those things. But trials are, are, are varying. There's different types of trials that we have. Some of them, you may look at them with a trial that you're experiencing in your life and go, man, that's not really a trial. I mean, compared to what I'm going through, that's not really a trial. But there's lots of trials that we walk through, just to give you some examples. Because we have lots of ages and stages in, just in this room alone. So we might be asking questions like, who should I date? Where should I go to school? Who should I be friends with? Where should I live after school? Who should I marry? When should we have children? What job should I take? How do I deal with this particular coworker who seems to be a hard person to work with? How can I be a good husband or how can I be a good wife? How can I raise my kids to, to fear and admonish the Lord? How do I deal with aging? How do I, how do I walk through a, a, a cancer diagnosis? It doesn't look so good. How do I do that? How do I deal with a rebellious child? And these are all trials in their various ways. And, and ultimately, what they all are are requests for wisdom. And James simply says, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Because Proverbs uh, 2 6 says, uh, the Lord gives wisdom, He'll give it to you. So the question we need to ask first is, what is wisdom? What is it? Well, and we could, we could say it this way, very simply. Wisdom is, biblically, biblical wisdom is simply uh, coming in line, your life coming in line with the one who made the world. That's biblical wisdom. So I had my nephew ask me last week at the beach. He said, Uncle Kevin, how do you know God's will for your life? Just like, okay. And I said, my immediate answer was, uh, God's word and God's people. God's word and God's people. I and mean, that's what the Bible says. It says to run, run to his word, read it, study it, meditate upon it, listen to it, apply it to your life. But then also the Bible says to surround yourself with many counselors. So God's word and God's people. So, so that, is, that is biblical wisdom, is, is, is aligning your life with the one who made the world. Biblical wisdom. Because sometimes our idea of wisdom uh, can get mixed up with what others may call good advice. So that somebody might shoot you a quote, you know, that sounds good on the surface. Um, I recently read uh, Matthew McConaughey's memoir, Green Light. So I had all these, I had all these grand plans over September to read, to read all these books, and the only book I got through was Matthew McConaughey's memoir. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but um, it will not be on the book table. Um, but in it, in it, he describes sort of his, 
his philosophy of life, his philosophy of wisdom. That's what the whole book is, is, is about. And he essentially boils it down, he, and he calls it this, to, to bumper sticker sayings. He likes bumper sticker sayings. And so he writes this. He says, he's 50 years old, but he said, I've, I've spent 35 years uh, realizing, remembering, recognizing, gathering, and jotting down what has moved me or turned me on along the way. How to be fair. How to have less stress. How to have fun. How to hurt people less. How to get hurt less. How to be a good man. How to get what I want. How to have meaning in life. How to be more me. End quote. Well, for James, wisdom is more than this. Wisdom is more than just how to be fair. Wisdom is more than how to have less stress. or It's even more than how to just be a good person. For James, wisdom is good character that is derived from the truth of God's word. And it looks like this. Wisdom is this. It's true. It's good. It's tested. And it's meek. It's, it's true, good, tested, and meek. And this is what one pastor noted this about these things. He says, if, because if wisdom isn't true, then it's optional advice. You can take it or leave it. If wisdom isn't good, then it has no moral roots. If wisdom isn't tested, then it has little practical or enduring value. And if wisdom isn't meek, then it's just depressing. It's just somebody telling you what to do. And then when you can cultivate all four of these things, true, good, tested, and meek, when you can cultivate all four of these things, you will begin to find wholeness around Christ. Because on the other hand, if you reject one or more of them, you will be the person that James describes in verses 6 through 8, whom he says is fragmented, shaky, and up and down, because, because doubt is opposed to wisdom. Look at verses 6 through 8. James says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is, that is driven and, and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, after reading that, I want to be clear about what James is not saying specifically concerning doubts. Because you might have heard that and thought, wow, I have doubts, so I'm, I'm this person. This is, this is it. So, so what, he, what he's not saying, what James is not saying here, he is not say, telling you, don't ask questions that you're curious about, about the Bible, about, about Christianity. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't ever wrestle with the deep spiritual realities that are oftentimes hard to wrap your mind around, like like miracles and and the resurrection and and things like that. That's not not what James is saying. I mean, I've even said it before from this pulpit that, that, that doubts are normal and good for any believer to have. Particularly when you uh, when you when you have these doubts and you begin to chase those doubts down in God's word, and with God's people. So doubts are good. So God isn't judging your doubts here. So hopefully that relieves some of you. Because the word being used for doubt here in the text actually means uh, to judge, divide, or separate. So the idea that James is getting at here is this. Is that you ask God for wisdom. So Name one of those, those questions that you had earlier. What school should I go to? Who should I marry? Uh, you know, how do I deal with, with, with this, that, or the other? So you, so you ask God for wisdom. He gives you wisdom. And then you proceed to scrutinize it, divide it, and judge it. Why? Why do we do that? And it's, this is the reason. It's because you actually believe that your wisdom is more accurate and more right than God's wisdom. You believe that. 
Um, the quote from, from the band Vampire Weekend, it's there in your, your worship guide, it's from this song, Step, that I think gives us this, a clear picture of what um, this looks like when they say, Wisdom's a gift, but you trade it for youth. Wisdom's a gift, but you trade it for youth, which means I know better. This is my life, and I know better than anybody, including God, what to do with my life. My wisdom is better than God's wisdom because my wisdom makes more sense. My wisdom seems more logical. My wisdom lines up with with my plans and my goals and my aspirations for my life, and it will ultimately, at the end of the day, will make me happy. So instead of choosing what is lasting, this gift of wisdom, you instead choose what is fading, which is likened to youth. And James says that the person who, uh, that does this is double-minded and unstable. They're doubting God's wisdom. They're doubting whether or not God is actually good. Because they ask for the mind of God, but insist on the mind of man. And that's a divided person. So there's two outcomes here. One you could is judgment of God's wisdom, which leads to instability and immaturity. And then two is faith in God's wisdom, which leads to steadfastness and maturity. So just the opposite. And you see this in the example that James gives us there in verses 9 through 11. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you have this, on one hand you have a, a, a brother boasting or told to boast in what he does not have. He's told to boast in his, uh, in his humiliation. He's told to boast in something that he has not attained on his own, which we could liken to the wisdom of God. But he is still told to boast because the wisdom of God, these riches of God, will last for eternity. And then you have, on the other hand, a rich man who's not called a brother, this rich man who has everything that he could possibly desire, and he's told to boast in his humiliation because he's boasting like a fool. Because he's boasting in something that is going to fade away, which we could liken to the wisdom of man. So every one of us, whether you are here and you are a Christian, or you are not yet a Christian, um, but you're curious about Christianity, every one of us has a, has a wisdom paradigm in which we are thinking through life. All of us are doing that. All of us have some sort of, we could call it a worldview in which we are filtering all of our decisions um, and everything that we're doing in life. All of us have that. So the question I have to ask is, what wisdom are you living out right now? What wisdom are you following? Are you asking for and, and listening to wisdom from God? I'm sure there's some of you here that are doing that. Or are you asking for wisdom from God when you get in that desperate situation and you think, I need God to intervene here, but then you're listening to the wisdom that comes from the world. You're divided. Because when you, when you begin to, to calculate your joy, to count it all joy in Christ and ask for wisdom from God, you are, you are living rightly. Because when you count it all joy, you are saying to a watching world that you believe in something that is beyond the understanding of this world, even beyond your own understanding. And then when you ask God for wisdom, you're confessing that you can't do it on your own. You can't live this life. You can't make the decisions that you need to make on your own, that you need something outside yourself, something transcendent to intervene. And what these things encompass is our final point, which is the right way 
to live. And there is a right way to live life. The, uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor describes our, our contemporary world to the world in which we currently live. He describes it as a, a cross-pressured age. So not like Jesus' cross, but like cross, things crossing, where, where the sacred and the secular co-mingle. That's the world in which we live. Because we, we live in this world um, every day where we often find ourselves defined by, by competing allegiances Either, to, either to, the, to the sacred narrative of this world or to the secular narrative of, that, of this world. So that is, that's happening to all of us. We are constantly in this battle of what, of what uh, the truth of God's word says and what the world is saying to us. That's all of us. So the prevailing wisdom of the secular narrative is this. Live your own truth. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, live your own truth. Truth, Or, as we like to say, you do you. As long as it's not hurting anybody, you just do what makes you happy. That's the secular narrative. The, the prevailing wisdom of the sacred narrative is live God's truth. Which is 100% counter to the world. Yet only one of these is right. And James is telling us which one that is. Look at verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this blessing formula is well known throughout the, the entire Bible in the Old Testament and New Testament. We saw it back in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man and we see that throughout, uh, throughout the New Testament. We also see it in, in the New Testament, Matthew 5, where Jesus uh, is walking through the Beatitudes. And you, you probably remember that from our study in the Beatitudes, when Jesus walks through, uh, what does a blessed person look like? That's the blessed paradigm or the blessed formula that we find in the Scripture. And that's important to understand for us, especially as we talk about trials and sufferings, because blessed is not the same as being happy. Blessed is not the same as being happy, because if you think blessed is about being happy, and this is kind of the, the prevailing uh, mantra of, 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 of health and wealth, the health and wealth message, the prosperity gospel, is that uh, to be blessed is to be happy. You will, end up in that, you will end up in that realm if you think blessed is the same thing as happy. Because if you think that, you will not be able to remain steadfast in the trials that will come your way. Because the trials that will come your way, it's not if they'll come, it's when they will come. Uh, the trials that will come your way sometimes will not make you happy in the moment. Sometimes they'll be devastating. Sometimes they'll make you angry and sad. Sometimes they'll make you feel lonely and depressed and anxious. But James says that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under those trials. So this is why James connects the word trial from verse 2 here in verse 12 and also the word steadfast from verses 3 and 4. He's making this connection for us because he wants you to see that there is a reward that comes from the one who lives faithfully to God under such trials. There is a reward. As in verse 2, trial refers to anything in life that may threaten your faithfulness to God. So this could be sickness, this could be financial troubles, this could be the death of someone close to you. Maybe it's a besetting sin that, that just has you in its grips and, you, and you're starting to kind of cry out to God because of that. What is it that could be or is threatening you right now, your faithfulness to Christ? What, what is the temptation there? I think for most of us, it is some version of this secular narrative of living your own tr truth. You doing you. You making yourself happy. For the rest of us, it will be that tragedy or that unanswered prayer, or that next disappointment that will just set us off. 
But what James wants the church of Jesus Christ to understand is that for those who stand up under the trials and tests that will come, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And let me just say this to you, just to state the obvious. That is the best reward that you could ever receive. There is no amount of applause, uh, applause or, or, or raises or accolades that you could receive from those around you that are going to top the crown of life that God gives to those who love him. Nothing will top that. Now, there is a temptation. A temptation is found in verses 13, 13 through 15 when, <coughs> when these trials and sufferings do come. James is very realistic about this. He knows that these things will happen. He knows how we will think. He's a good pastor. And so he says this in 13, uh, verse 13, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the temptation here is that, that you will, uh, when, when these trials and tests and these sufferings come upon, upon you, the temptation is you will blame God for your sinful response. You'll blame God for your sinful response. You'll, 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 blame, you'll want to blame God for your doubting shaky, unstable heart. So James goes on to explain the anatomy of sin. And I wish we could, stay, we could spend more time on this, but we're, we're really just skimming over this. But, but James explains the anatomy of sin so that you don't fall into this trap in verses 14 through 15. He describes it this way. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So first you must see that within, within every trial, within every trial that you will face, there is enticement to sin. There will be an opportunity for you to sin. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into sin, but deliver us from evil. Because every, every hardship that you face, you will be enticed to sin. Every trial brings temptation. So financial difficulty, if you're having financial difficulty, um, that can tempt you to question if God really cares about you. Is God really going to provide for me? Because I don't think he will. The death of someone close can tempt you to think that God doesn't really love you. The suffering of those around us in this world can tempt us to think that God doesn't care about justice. But you must recognize that enticement to sin comes from your own sinful desire. It does not come from God. God never seeks to induce you uh, to sin, but he, but he tests you in order to strengthen your faith not to destroy your faith. So if you don't understand this, what will end up happening is that you will begin to misinterpret what it is that God is doing in you through these trials. And this is what James warns us of this in verses 16 through 17. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the fathers of Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the deception is that you will not believe that God is good. You will, you will, you will look at this hardship, you will look at this suffering, and you will, and rather than, than look at it as a, as a joy and, and counter joys in the midst of it, and rather than seeing yourself as a blessed individual because God is working in you this, this, spiritual, uh, this spiritual act in order to bring you towards maturity in Christ, rather you will, you will shake your fist at him and curse him. And James says, don't be deceived. You'll be tempted to doubt the Father's love for you because the gift may not appear good or perfect at the time. 
You'll be tempted not to believe the words of Paul when he says in Romans 8.28, And we know that God works all things, all things together, for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. So James wants you to to see that the opposite of all this is true. That, that God's, God's uh, bringing upon tests and trials is not Him hating you, but Him loving you. Verse 18. Of His own will, God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So James wants you to see at the outset of his letter the Father's desire to bring you forth in love. That's the Father's desire. The Father's desire is to set you on the path of right living and that He is using everything in your life, everything in your life, to do this good work in you. That that His desire is to to bring you, uh, I think it's C.S. Lewis, he says, further up and further into the reality of the gospel and to make you whole in Jesus. And when you have this before you, when you understand that that is what the Father is doing, that the Father deeply loves you and that is the work in which He is doing in you, then you can count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. You, can, you, can, you will plunge the depths of the wisdom of God because you can trust it as true and right and good. And because you'll know over and over again the love that the Father has for you in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, in whatever uh, um, we will we'll be led into this week, or maybe even, even things that we're already sitting in the midst of, that we, whatever trials may be upon us, whatever sufferings that we may be experiencing, whatever inner anguish or turmoil that is going on in our hearts, that we will remember to count it all joy when we meet these trials knowing that all of these things will produce in us hope in Christ. God, help us as a people not to be, uh, to be swayed by the wisdom of this world, but that we would constantly ask you for wisdom as we seek to live faithfully to you under such trials in this watching world. And that we would be faithful to ask you for wisdom and that we would be faithful to apply that wisdom because we know that you are setting us apart as these first fruits of righteousness. And that we would live as these fruits of righteousness in this world. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.